say, well, there's an election coming up. This could get really bad. And at that point, the government is going to have to say, the Fed is going to have to say, okay, inflation is still here, but like we have to decide inflation or everyone loses their building because they can't service their loan. What's worse? Inflation, like how high can it be? And then, you know, people just seeing real estate market in a free fall because no one's loan can cover. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start. And most of the education out there is just complete trash. And you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Brenneman Blueprint. Thanks for joining us today. On the podcast, I have Gabe Horstick from Base 3 Development. So he's been on the podcast before, always one of the favorite people to chat with on this podcast, had a lot of good conversations uh, together on the podcast, and then obviously in in person, knowing each other for quite a while. So Yeah, no, it's great to be back, and uh, welcome back to Chicago. Um, you know, hope you're enjoying Texas. Sounds like it's been a great move, and I, I wish you the best, but good to hear from you, and great to be back. So uh, yeah, let's get to it. Awesome. Yeah, no, yeah, Texas has been good. I think if... Uh, people haven't heard I moved to Austin Texas at the end of uh end of April and yeah it's been a great great move so, yeah fantastic well, but, welcome home yeah <laughs> so yeah I think maybe let's just kind of actually I think last time when we started you said you were you're picking up your golf game how's the golf game looking uh it's non-existent I've been too busy uh finishing up projects and unloading trucks with boxes so I haven't really done much but uh I plan on you know trying to take a few swings uh here as summer winds down at least yeah so. that's I, f I figured that was gonna be your answer I really want to join a country club yeah I'm not that's not normally what I would want to do but I now being in Austin I feel like you know you're gonna oh, meet people absolutely. and also yeah. you can use it year-round yeah, no, um, it, it makes so. sense. And I mean, I'm also, as you may know, somewhat of an impatient person, so it doesn't totally fit my personality, but I think it's a social fun thing to do and, and great for business development and connecting with friends and others. So, and, and I'm in the burbs now. So instead of living in the West Loop mm -hmm. and then I don't know what an hour at least to drive to a golf course that's nicer here. Now there's one like less than 10 minutes. Yeah. Like the second amazing. nicest country club there. So. But I'm still trying to figure out how to get into the first yeah. nicest. So if anyone knows uh, anybody at the Austin Country Club or how to how that all works, let me know. You'll so, be in before you know it. So yeah, I heard there's like a ten year wait. So time to just queue up and uh, get in. But cool, yeah. I think maybe if people haven't heard you on the other podcasts, like the our this podcast has grown really a lot. Um, mm -hmm. I've also have gone on a bunch of podcasts, so that's really. Blown, blown this up over last year. I've gone on 30 podcasts so far. Oh, this wow. Year. So Incredible. Congratulations. On my, on my podcast grind. But um, for folks that haven't heard your story, maybe just kind of tell people 
yeah, who you are, what absolutely. you do. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I mean, my name is Gabe Horstick. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, went to UW Madison, studied real estate there. That's essentially how I met Drew, uh, as well as a lot of other great people. And um, worked for a small developer there uh, while I was attending school, got my real estate license at 19, started hustling sort of, you know, nights, weekends while in college, and then uh, moved to Chicago, got a job in banking, uh, did that for a while, but I bought my first four flat uh, when I was 23 years old in 2008 before the financial crisis occurred, and then just gradually started buying more and more property, another, you know, four flat here, four flat there, and then in... uh, 2012 bought my first six unit without an outside investor i was still in the banking world and then over that the following 12 months sort of started scaling that up with outside money and started relying more on investor capital and grew that to be you know a couple hundred apartments some office some uh, retail medical office and other properties and then uh, about two years ago i officially started a new development company called base three development also based here in Chicago, just to focus on larger multifamily construction value add opportunities. So been doing that and have had a really good run uh, since starting about two and a half years ago. Nice. And like, how big is the port- portfolio you have, would you say now? Um, I believe my new portfolio, excluding my previous company, is uh, maybe $75 million plus $100 million in legacy assets. So Okay, nice. Yeah. So I've been gradually growing and really trying to transition into, you know, where I recommend a lot of people starting is somewhat smaller size, four units, five units, six units. So I've been divesting of some of those and, and trying to trade into, you know, 50 units and up and also starting more ground up uh, development projects just to be more scale, recognizing that you can hit a you know thousand unit goal a lot quicker if you're doing it 50 to 80 units at a time as opposed to six units at a time and having a lot of locations a lot of books a lot of separate entities to manage it, it really a lot of makes things returns. yeah a lot a lot of a uh, lot to manage so um we've been doing the same thing most every deal that was below three million dollars i've sold the last couple of years otherwise i mean that's the main reason we sold them I and mean, they were value-add deals that were we realize the value, you know, but also yeah. then we look at it and go like, hmm, it's a lot of work to do quarterly reporting and have to file a tax return on a five unit within the guy. Yeah, right. no, I completely agree. And that's that's the interesting thing now is I'm looking to divest some of my legacy assets. I'm finding that it's actually now the smaller ones that are even harder to sell. So I think, you know, right now interest rates have really affected that market. And we're seeing that some of the bigger assets that are, more sought after for uh, ultra high net worth individual or family office, you know, that 5 million up, those are still trading at a good multiple. So it's been interesting seeing the market change. From that yeah. And I, I think that 5 million to like 40 million is like really like if something's like it's less weak than the, the rest where mm-hmm. yeah, below five, it's uh it's a tough time to be a first time buyer. And then on the, like the really big deals, these, these family offices, these private equity funds. I mean, everyone's just still pencils down. Yeah. There's it's no, a, it's a strange time for sure. Yeah. Cause I was in Phoenix talking to one of the IPA brokers there who does just, the, they do the most deals and all the biggest ones. And, um, we know some of the same equity groups and I was, I had asked him about like referrals to other like family offices or mm-hmm. groups we should talk to. And he was like, let's do that when they actually might be able to invest. Yeah. Like right now they're all the same, like, hold up let's see where things are and also a lot of them are investing in pref equity uh-huh. right now like those kind of opportunities and if you can make a 12 percent return with a lot less risk 
mm-hmm. in pref. You know, does it make sense to try to make a 15 or a little higher percent return on a, on, on investing equity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It depends no. what your mindset is. You know, if you think that you're going to outperform, uh, and, you know, there's upside potential, obviously downside potential too on like mm-hmm. on investing in equity. But, uh, you know, so it makes sense kind of where if you already are a family office, you have a lot of money, you know, why not take the safer 12? And that's what it seems like they all are doing right now. Well, that's what's interesting too. I think right now people still want to transact. People still want to put money out and there's still a lot of liquidity out there. And I think everyone, a lot of people are on the sidelines and they're kind of doing the wait and see. And then other people are, I think, seeing some really exciting opportunities to buy at prices that are coming down somewhat quickly. And it really varies, you know, asset to asset, neighborhood to neighborhood. Um, But you know, I've seen some more interesting things knock loose, but then really the biggest challenge right now is, especially for projects, which I tend to do more projects than buy light rehab or buy it, paint it. You know, I'm doing more heavy lift, new construction out of the ground or full gut renovation, new mechanicals in a lot of my projects, which can be, you know, on a new build, 200 and a quarter a unit to build in plus land, plus soft costs, or on a renovation, anywhere from 80000 120-ish thousand unit, give or take. And so right now, the biggest challenge is going to all my relationships banks and having them say, we cannot give you a fixed rate construction loan. Uh, right now, your best bet is you're going to take a floating loan that has a seven in front of it, in some cases an eight. And if you're trying to do even a 7% unlevered return, like you're out of the money on that. And that it's kind of hard to wrap your, your head around that. And I think a lot of people just don't know what's going to happen. Um, one of the last loans I actually closed was for a new construction 20-unit project I'm working on for a site I own up on Irving Park Road in North Center. And I was able to lock in a five-year construction loan with three years of I.O. at under 6%. And I feel like in talking to my peers and even looking at doing new projects, it's like that was, I I jokingly liken it to the movie Indiana Jones where the boulder's rolling after him. Uh, And then he like goes through the tunnel and he like pulls his hat right as the thing comes crashing down. That's kind of what it has felt like getting some of these loans closed before the things have really shifted. And the consensus I'm hearing and seeing is that, you know, this is not going to be forever. We just don't know what's going to happen with rates. I think, you know, a lot of things would indicate in the bond market, people much smarter than I am, you know, looking at how treasuries are pricing out and pricing in a decline in treasuries because we have an inverted yield curve, meaning borrowing overnight for, say, a construction loan or a business loan that's floating, you're at 7 8%. And then you're borrowing longer term at 6% or less. It means that yield curve's inverted. Um, so it would indicate that in the long run rates will go down, but maybe they don't. Maybe maybe we're looking at a construction uh, loan environment that we're at seven or eight percent. It's interesting to see that on the front end because news travels pretty slowly in terms of if like someone like you or I are out there to basically take on a construction loan and we were fixed at five point eight five six percent previously 5%, previously 4%, previously 3.5%, and now it's 7, 7.5%, people in our position are sort of the conduit between the bank and the person that's actually doing sometimes the work, and uh, meaning like the carpenter, the electrician, the plumber, the tradesman, whoever, 
uh, all the other various services that feed into the construction trade. And it's kind of interesting, like firsthand, if we can't get financing to do these projects, we're going to potentially, I think, see some of these, these industries come to a grinding halt. And I know some people are still getting things done, but I mean, what the, the federal government, the federal reserve is doing, it's working because guys yep. like you or I are just looking <clears throat> at things and saying, whoa, I, I, I'm just not going to take on a floating construction loan at seven and a half percent. Now, the counter argument to that has been, well, yeah, it's seven and a half, but you'll benefit when it comes down and you're floating at four. And it's like, but what if that doesn't happen? <laughs> you know, so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that and how much that is really putting the brakes on, on transactions and construction. Yeah, I think I I agree with the slowdown in construction that's coming because I've been telling people that for a while where, you know, like you're, you might talk to your contractor and they'll say, we're super busy. We got so many projects, but it's like, what, what a new projects have you heard about? Or have we saw the, that are getting funded and starting within the last nine months, There's very few new things that are getting any development equity, Mm -hmm. or that are getting construction financing today. Either the developer's deal doesn't make sense at these high rates, or they don't want to sign on for recourse and go through a bank. Um, so what you're talking about, like borrow at 7 8%, but then your stabilized you know, yield on cost is equivalent to your debt or lower on mm -hmm. most apartment deals. Like now you're a little bit betting on interest rates falling or a lot betting on that, things going back to how they were somewhat. So yeah, I think I think there's going to be a big drop off in in terms of what new units are under construction, and actually that's one thing that I like uh, still about the Sun Belt, where the only knock you can have on like Arizona, Texas, whatever, is they always are building a lot, mm -hmm. but they have huge population and in, in job inflows, so like th they still get big rent growth even with all the heavy building, but now couple that with a slowdown in new construction, I think you're going to have rents really exploding in like two years in Texas, Arizona, Florida, these places, just kind of maybe almost right back where it was. Um, Cause you still have people moving there and all these businesses relocating. Mm -hmm. um, and you're not going to have as much supply being dropped. And I think also when you, people look at like, here's the amount of units in a market. That's uh, the, the quoted new supply figure from, you know, from real page or from Yardy or CoStar, I bet like half those don't even get built. Mm -hmm. I bet will be my guess, let's say a half to a third because the debt and equity to do the project is, is hard to get. And then if you can get it, it's the rates are so much higher, the interest rates that makes the returns lower and now the project's not feasible. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to see a drop off there. And yeah, in terms of interest rates, uh, yeah, the yield curve, I mean, I just looked it up because I have my laptop out, but Right. What you we had said were if you got um, people are taking lower interest rates, uh, lower yields on like a 10 year bond over the short term ones. Obviously, they're betting on interest rates. They, they they're going to take a lower return for 10 years than like what the three year pays out now. Mm -hmm. They're assuming rates are going to be a lot lower after the third year. Otherwise, why would you take a lower return uh, for 10 years than what you could get today? Yeah. So, no, makes sense to me. Um so I'm seeing I'm seeing the same thing. I just can see where I haven't seen a lot of distressed pricing, you know, on stuff where I know there's distress in the market, but I haven't seen a lot of stuff sell where it's like, wow, that's really a steal. Mm -hmm. You know, transaction volumes drop so much that while there are less buyers out there, there's 
even less deals on the market to bid on. Mm-hmm. We looked, we threw in an offer on a deal in Dallas, and there were 29 other offers. Just recently? Yeah, in, uh, in July. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it was so widely marketed. I mean, the reason I said threw in an offer was it wasn't the way we normally buy things, where it's like, hey, there's going to be 30 offers. Like, it's just not how you get the best deal. But so that deal had some distress on it and out of a foreign uh, owner from uh, from Japan and the mismanaged and just kind of what you'd want to see. Mm-hmm. But it's being sold at a price that, um, you know, if there's 29 offers, it's going to sell at a big number. Mm-hmm. Wow. So like, where's the distress pricing? That's yeah. Happening? Well, it's funny on the, the topic of distress. One of my good friends, an attorney who does a lot of work for me, he also works with a lot of banks. And so I think, you know, construction is an interesting uh, economic bellwether just for how things generally are doing generally in the economy. And I think we're starting to see some some cracks in that. But um, another bellwether is obviously is my attorney that handles some bankruptcies is that is also a bankruptcy attorney and works with banks and and people that might need to file for bankruptcy. Is he starting to see some some stuff come in? And so he actually, uh, we recently connected and he's like, Hey, I think I saw my first potential to buy a note secured by really well-located multifamily assets on the North side of Chicago. And, um, I'll let you know if there's anything further there, but the fact that he's seeing something, he hasn't seen something in five, six years, except for really special situations where something is just totally out of whack on a project. Um, the fact that he's, I think, starting to get busier in that regard is going to probably see some things wash up. That's I think s- something uh, worth talking about is just the concept that when rates are high, there's less transaction, there's less happening, generally speaking. And I think that this also is like potentially a great time for opportunity. And I think that people are potentially going to be able to start buying properties at less than replacement value, meaning that if someone did a deal, uh, I actually looked at a deal. I'll give you an example. They bought a building in Wicker Park. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but let's just say big picture is 30 units, a location. They bought it for $3 million, 100 grand a door. They put in 150000 a door. So they're in at two fifty. You know, yeah, they're in at two fifty. Uh, and that was a great deal two years ago when rates were four and a half percent, you know, um, that deal now is available for two twenty five a door. I'm talking, this is all hypothetical. Yeah. This, well, this is actually closely mirrors that deal. And what I know out of experience is buying that, like if I could personally find a 30 unit shell right now for a hundred thousand a unit, I'd be beyond excited about that. But because rates are so high, that doesn't excite me anymore. And the other side of that is that someone else has already gone through rezoning it, uh, you know, gutting it, doing all the work. That's an 18-month project. So I think we might start to see opportunities where you can basically go in at the same cost or less that that person is in on that project, but they've also used a year and a half of their life and an architect and a zoning attorney and all these other inputs uh that really start racking up the costs and um i just saw this opportunity where they are going to lose money they've owned it three four years and um you know maybe there's a retail component and they lost a big tenant and now there's some serious motivation out there and there's just not a lot of people stepping up to to buy it i mean there might be a deal where they're asking nine million and all of a sudden you're like see just closed we're close at seven 
<laughs> yeah, I th- you know, and that's that's happening right now. And so I think with that, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity. Something I discuss with a lot of my partners um, and investors is the idea of: Is there going to be blood in the streets? Are we in a free fall? Are we going into a free fall? And I don't think we will be because there's still so much money out there to scoop things up. But I think it's really just market to market where you know what the discount might be and. Some markets might not have as much of a discount as others. Some markets may have more liquidity and buyers in them. So it's it's really hard to say. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, agree, agree. That's and I'm seeing the same thing. You know, I get a, a lot of these email blasts, and it's been quite a while now. Where uh, for whatever reason, all these deals that come out in Orlando, they all say below replacement costs. So hmm. I mean, because the construction costs exploded for one. So if something was built, let's say in the finish in 2020, like they built that at yesterday's price and then prices went up so much since. And now, you know, insurance exploded there for cost and like, so and then values came down with interest rates. So then you had insurance go through the roof and interest rates jump. So then the prices fell and most everything that's like five years old in Orlando, cause I see it coming in, it's all below replacement cost. And that's just one, um, one place I'd imagine that same age of construction and most of Texas, it's going to be like that. Cause, um, it's expensive. It's still pretty expensive to build there. And then the property taxes are high. So it wasn't like some of these places where Phoenix was really lucrative to be a builder. Cause the taxes are, it's property taxes are really low. Mm-hmm. So they are building and having huge margins. I mean, people selling new apartment deals in Scottsdale for six, 700,000 a unit for a little bit because the property taxes are peanuts there. Yeah. I mean, $25 million deal. I think our taxes are like 40 grand a year. You have to wow. look it up. And then in this Crazy. building we're in this, you know, this was a $33 million deal. Our taxes are 550,000 a year. Well, a little different, you know, math, oh, a lot um, of, a lot of retirements <clears throat> and pensions to pay for there. Yeah. So, and so, uh, in Texas has pretty high property taxes too, cause no, no state income tax. So need to get the money somewhere, but they, um, so that's helped, helped keep the values, let's say in check a little bit two replacement costs, but mm-hmm. then now values fall. Replacement cost hasn't really fallen. I think a lot of those five and 10 year Texas deals are below replacement costs now. So to your point, just to make this make some sense, what are we talking about? It's like, at what point do you go, hey, I'm building this for cheaper than, than they you could rebuild it for. So there's not gonna be a lot of new supply that's gonna really drive rents and I'm buying it, I'm just, like at what point is it, you know, a basis play is the new term a lot of people are mm-hmm. using where, yeah, to build that Wicker Park deal, you know, to do it in in yesterday's environment, you'd be all in at 250 a door in your example. If you could just buy it for 225 with no work, at what point mm-hmm. is it just not like I'll just I, I need to buy this because it's less than we could do it for again now. And I'm saving to your point all this all the work involved. Well, and it's funny on that note, because we, we floated this deal to a group of investors that we've worked with that have an appetite for more. They want to stay in Chicago multifamily and we showed it to them and they're like, well, looks great, but what's the angle? Well, I'm like, well, the angle is we're buying it below replacement costs, but what, what's the construction? Like, what are we going to get in there and start ripping it apart? And really like, no, like we're, it's done. It's just a good deal. And so it's funny, like the, the, the mind shift there. And I know that's an area where you did very well, you know, following the financial crisis was buying good cap rates, not crazy cap rates, but you just went in and rents went up 20% and you didn't have to swing a hammer. You didn't have to do anything. Maybe you put a coat of paint on it, but I think that's a great execution from a business standpoint. And 
you know, I'm actually um, selling a number of my properties right now. Uh, some of the larger mid-sized ones in my portfolio. And it's been funny. I mean, those are in the area where there is transactions happening. There is velocity. And it's um, for those three properties, two of them are close to $4 million and one is a little bit over 9 million. Uh, Two out of the three of those buyers are actually assuming an agency loan. So what I'm referring to, and you may have explained this in other podcasts, but when I refinance those buildings, let's say I was into the building for one of them I built for two and a half million. I put a loan on it for two and a half million when I was done, when the market was just right. This was in 16, 17. Uh, so I had a loan on it for hundred percent of cost. And so that, let's say that property, I had a loan on it for two, five, two, six. I was in for two, five, two, six, pulled out pretty much hundred percent of the original money on it. And, uh, now I've just sold one of those properties, let's say for close to 4 million. Um, a buyer looked at that and basically said, well, I could put down 35% now and get a new non-recourse loan with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or Chase, or I can put down an extra 5% and assume the loan that you have in place, which in this case is a Freddie Mac loan that has 40 months left at 3.9%. Nice. So it's the, we're seeing more value in loan assumptions and people are making the you know, the, the business decision of, let's say I financed it at 80% of cost, but I paid it down to now be at, let's say 65 of cost and let's say even equal value, um, that people are putting down more to get, you know, a much lower rate and just have it locked in. So it's really been funny with a lot of these, these sales going through that assumption process, which I've never been through. Uh, but it's, you know, there's never a reason to not get financing because there's existing financing in place and people are just coming in with more cash to, to get these, these deals done. So, um, yeah, I hear you. That's really, people just have to be more creative right now to, to find a way. I mean, I actually have a friend who's does deals in the twin cities and he has a lot of really good financing locked in on his properties. Um, 4% credit union debt, 10 years of term left. And in year two, he actually was able to work out, um, I forget the term for it, but situations where he's able to basically, I think it's like redemptive title. I forget the legal term for it, but he's able to basically keep the financing in place and then hold paper and be in the middle and he'll arbitrage on the rate. So he basically will sell it, get 15, 20% down, He's essentially perform- providing almost like a mez financing. Uh, really bright guy, uh, but that's a way that he's been able to get people to transact because, you know, some of these deals just will not sell if the rate is six and a half, seven percent. So it's really, you know, stifling the the otherwise a fairly liquid <clears throat> multifamily um, carpet or multifamily for sale market. Yeah, no, I I hear you you on everything. Yeah, we've done. Uh... Now I think 15 full cash out refis, 13 on apartments, two on commercial. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, four of the deals I bought, I think Bell, Madison, Evergreen, and Damon and Lister, those are all loan assumptions, so four. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. and then um, they had the second Evergreen. I, I also have one in Old Town and Evergreen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, all from developers, except for one, where they built the building and then put a yield maintenance loan on, mm-hmm. locked themselves up, you know, can't yep. pay it off, yep. uh, you know, rate, the rates were in the fours on all these loans. Um, so one was in the threes, then the, their yield maintenance was really high because at the time rates were in the low threes. Couldn't get out of it. So small market to sell yeah, to at the 4% time. 4% loans are looking pretty good right now. 
I know. <laughs> I know. It's a good thing we picked them up at a discount because yeah. of those really high rates. So, um, but yeah, they, uh, yeah, so those were, and then I'm selling one now with the buyers assuming. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Oh, wow. It's it's a slower process. Um, and then ask about what the assumption costs are when you start because it's, it's every bit as expensive as putting the new loan on. I think people mm -hmm. assume like, I'll just, you know, whatever we, they already have an appraisal. You don't need that. You don't need to do a physical inspection, but yeah, you do a Freddie Mac uh, assumption, let's say. New, you got to do a new property condition report. So let's say that's four grand. You got to pay an application fee, 2,500, some sort of review fee, another 3,000 out the door. So you already spent 10 grand for your anywhere and you need to pay a full point hmm. um, to assume the loan. And normally, uh, you know, that's kind of just gets worked into the rate or, yeah, go, yeah. you know, uh, or they charge a quarter point or something on origination. So it's actually, I guess, factoring the point, it's, it's not, so it's not cheaper just for people. You don't just say, I want to assume it. Yeah. And you gotta, right. you gotta understand what the costs are and also figure out what's the loan balance. What's the interest rate? Where am I in the amortization schedule? So you need to know mm -hmm. the initial balance when it started, when the principal and the interest payment started, what's the interest rate, what's the maturity date. Cause you're going to need to, you're starting into their amortization schedule. Mm -hmm. So just get yeah. their loan note or their amortization schedule. It's my tip. Don't ask. <laughs> too many complicated questions to try to get a copy of what you can use. But yeah, I think, think you're right. That's a way to make deals work for sure. Yeah. Cause more absolutely. or less when we underwrite, we're like, we need to get to this yield on cost unless it's a loan assumption, then we just need to underwrite it and see where are we? Yeah. Cause obviously if you're saving a, a ton on interest expense, like you can afford to pay a little more for the property, mm -hmm. not an insane amount more and overpay, but some more. So well, I think, you know, for long-term investors who have that long-term debt locked in, I mean, we're in an inflationary environment and things that we've talked about happening for years, inflation is finally really happening. So if you're able to lock in debt that still has five, seven, or 10 years of term left, and let's say you're at 4%, like the rents are definitely outpacing expenses right now in most cases. So um, it's, a, it's an exciting time to have long-term fixed rate debt it's a somewhat nerve wracking time to have shorter term debt with a lot of maturities. And one thing that I always think of that when I talk about like having a diversified portfolio, it's not just of assets and locations and unit types, but it's also your financing. And what I always think of learned in school is like bond laddering where it's like, if I have a hundred million dollars of debt, I better not have $50 million rolling in 12 months. Cause it could be in that really painful, somewhat frightening window. And um, one thing I think will be really curious to see play out is a lot of these Freddie Mac loans that were made that were those hybrids that adjusted. I mean, I think one of your, your recent guests is uh, another guy I'm friends with. I, really I, I literally just told him this a uh, an hour ago when we yeah. did the podcast. But so go, go CBRE mortgage broker, great guy, Steve Kundert, um, he's financed some of my projects. He's done a lot of business with you as well, fellow Badger uh uw madison grad if you have a hybrid loan that you took on four and a half years ago and you had a five-year fix and you were at four percent and it's a six and a half percent unlevered return that loan can jump up one point every six months so that if you're in that situation on a lot of loans um you may find yourself what we say out of the money and what out of the money means it's the the concept of well, great. I have a loan at four and a half percent. The property is generating on levered return of six and a half percent. I'm able to cover my my debt 
to my income with a sufficient coverage, let's say a 1.2 or greater, um, that's not going to happen before long. And I wonder how bad things are going to get and how much pain there's going to be before that ripples into more, more assets, different investors, different markets, because I mean, right now we're just seeing the beginning of that where those loans are starting to, to flip and, you know, out of the, let's say 50 mortgages I have, I have one that comes up in five months. It's a really small loan. And I'm, you know, I talked to him like he actually made the loan on. He's like, well, what? He's like, here's my advice. He's like, just hang in there. And if you're out of the money, like, you know, feed it five grand a year. This is not a big loan. It's one of the smaller properties I own. But I just think about someone in a scenario where they have 20 of those and that there are people out there that have that, that wanted to, you know, five years ago, they could have taken out a fixed rate at four and a half percent, you know, for five years, or they could have taken out a fixed rate at 5% for seven years. And they said, well, you know, rates are going to stay low. And I think the issue that some people are going to have, if they're not careful about how they stagger their, their loan maturities, is that if we all of a sudden have a billion dollars of loans coming up that were tight to begin with, which I think is completely possible, um, what are borrowers going to do in that situation? I mean, they are non-recourse loans. That's why people take them on, meaning there's no personal guarantee. You can just walk away from it. But all of a sudden, we're going to see a lot of properties that are not going to pencil and there's going to be existing owners. And now I think the rents in many instances are going up and they're able to help adjust for the rising rates. That's what's great about multifamily is you're marking to market the apartments. And as rates go up, we generally see rents go up. But if all of a sudden there's a billion dollars of properties that maybe they didn't have the rent increases that people had planned on, I think this is going to become a really, really big, big problem. And I'm very curious to see how it plays out. And I think it's one of the many reasons that people look at and say, well, there's an election coming up. This could get really bad. And at that point, the government is going to have to say, the Fed is going to have to say, okay, inflation is still here, but like we have to decide inflation or everyone loses their building because they can't service their loan. What's worse? Inflation, like how high can it be? And then, you know, people just seeing real estate market in a free fall because no one's loan can cover. And so something we've talked about on other podcasts, you know, I talked about generally is like everything is a timing concept where it's like, is this going to be a three more month thing? Is it six months? Is it a year? Is it three? Is it five? And how long can you ride out this storm? You know? Well, let me, I can, I'll jump in now. The, uh. <laughs> A uh, couple things. It's it's a lot worse than you're talking about. Like you're you're talking about fixed rate borrowers that then have a floating rate tail, right? Mm -hmm. What about the floating rate borrowers that bought two year interest rate caps? I mean, there's uh the example everyone loves to talk about is Tides Equities. They're a multifamily value add company that bought seven billion dollars of deals in the Sun Belt, all in the last two or three years. Mm -hmm. um, they are one of the best operators in terms of like rehab and running a property. So like they're great operators, but everyone loves to talk about them because they have billions of dollars of deals where it's all floating rate debt fund with two and three year interest rate caps. So you're, you're talking about people who are going from a 4% rate to 
um, what does it look like when the, okay, it's going to go to five for, you know, a minute. And well, these are, these loans are floating rate where it's a, it's a three-year term. They're at a hard maturity. There's no, there's no one that can backfill this, this debt. Like they need to add money. And then what, what's the financing look like for them on these deals? If they, if they didn't buy a long enough rate cap, the all in debt fund rates are like in the eights now. And you're on Sunbelt multifamily where cap rates are five. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, there's a lot of, um, people that are, I mean, the Freddie Mac small balance example, that's those people are sitting pretty compared to if you were doing, yeah, they, and they don't have a personal guarantee. Yeah. So. Yeah. These debt, yeah. These debt fund ones are non-recourse too, you know, but, um, yeah. you, those are at least were fixed rate with, or with a good spread over, you know, term. So for where, yeah. So any of these debt fund borrowers are in a lot, uh, worse shape. And then, um, you know, yeah, any of the transitional property type stuff, like that sounds like a stabilized deal where you paid the loan down a little bit. These people are still rehabbing their deals and they're mm-hmm. in a debt fund loan and there's no takeout, uh, no takeout loan right now that could you could refinance your principal yeah. balance with. I mean, just you borrowed at, you know, you got your loan sized up at a 4% interest rate, let's say, because they're being conservative on the sizing because the rates are in the threes, right? <laughs> That you borrowed a 75% loan to cost, market drops 30%, interest rates go to six. We used to be a banker. You're yeah. adding you're <laughs> adding money now. Well, and and I think another thing to look at when we talk about the bellwether of the economy and real estate, and it's like construction slowing down, talking to, you know, attorneys that represent banks and work in bankruptcy and work in REO and work in note sales, but also um looking at banks, what are the bank's workout departments going to be like? And that's what ultimately happens. And, you know, as I've done some of these bigger projects, you know, one of the questions that was raised when I was putting together the, um, you know, the larger project I'm wrapping up now in Ashland, uh, 48 unit, big project, pretty ambitious, but coming together. What I found there is that the rents have helped offset the future uh, rate increases pretty significantly, almost one to one. Um, but then also, you know, I, I have 20 months of term left and I feel pretty good about how that'll shake out, but we just don't know. I mean, we're going to be at 8%, 9%. I mean, it's just, that's part of the risk of doing this. And I think, you know, anyone out there building a portfolio, it's like, you just have to spread out your risk and you have to spread out your loan maturities. And, um, just speaking as someone who worked at a bank in the midst of the financial crisis, even when rates went up in a very similar manner, um, following, you know, like the housing boom, I remember LIBOR overnight, LIBOR borrowing was 0.32 or it was, or maybe it was zero and then it went to five and a half. Yeah. So someone was borrowing at 2% because it was 2% plus zero and then it was 2% plus 5.3, I think. Um, the people that were in multifamily were able to mark to market on their rents and they were able to ride it out. And in some instances, maybe they had to plug liquidity uh, into the deal just to just tide them over. But if you have enough, if you have 10 of these at once in your portfolio is only 15 assets, kind of toast. So, um, but I think that, you know, no bank wants to take back properties. And I think we'll see potentially some workouts in these situations because that's the best thing to do is just ride it out, raise the rents and hope to come out on the other end. And that's, I think, again, the benefit of having a diversified portfolio where it's like you got your five-year loans, your seven-year loans, and your 10-year loans, and it all sort of can wash out. And um, 
And so where I was saying where there's going to be the trouble is you had so many of these deals that were bought, let's say in 2021, everyone was doing a three-year term bank loan, debt fund loan, whatever it was. It's just, this is a renovation. This is what the term is. And because after 18 to 30 months, you would refi, non-recourse, pull money out or sell it for a large yeah, profit. Triple your money, right? That's how yeah, real estate What could works. go wrong? And so <laughs> all those loans are coming due next year. Yeah. And even if even if they'll work it out, most of them were floating rate uh, deals where you had to buy a rate cap. Now rate caps are through the roof because of where SOFR is, uh-huh. 5% plus. So that's where I'm saying like there is there is distress out there. It's just it still needs to be... It's a 2021 deals that were three-year term loans from the owners that can't add money. Um, Because to your point, if you just have one bad apple in it, it's like you can round up the money, figure it out. If you've got 20 of them, yeah. now you know maybe a few are you're going to have to go kind of thing where you're not going to be able to keep them. Or you know, you who are your investors in those deals? If they're in like 50 deals that are all upside down from like a cash need standpoint, you have to add money. And maybe they're going to say no, or let's just sell it. And then I'll take what money I can pull out of this one, add it to the others. And then you get the bad end of the deal. So there's going to be distress for sure. The thing that will be interesting to see how it plays out is right now, transaction volume is down depending on the market, 50 to 80%. So you have so few deals on the market, but still, you still have a lot of buyers. So I don't know how... I don't know what the percentage is for buyers that have like left the market, but let's just say if 75% of the buyers would still buy right now, but the transaction volume, so that dropped 25% and the transaction volume dropped 80. Mm-hmm. If you're still with me on this scenario, you just have a lot of buyers chasing after just have literally a fifth of the deals that are normally for sale. Huh. So that's why the deal in Dallas got 29 offers. Cause literally that was the, one of the few value add deals around $15 million in the what fourth biggest fifth mm-hmm. biggest msa in the country yeah like that so everyone's just looking at that and then some you know people from other countries bidding on it too like where that's uh so that was a distressed deal going at a not a distressed price so what you would need for the distressed pricing to hit is like enough of those deals to hit where it's like geez i can't even keep up with all these there's 15 20 on the market at once and then something slips through the cracks yeah. So feels like we're a ways from that. Obviously, I like the year idea, and it's just it's a basis play. I mean, that's more or less what my 2009 and 10 and 11 deals were like. You know, it's hard to predict what's going to happen in the GFC. Like things are bad, but hey, we're getting the big difference was it was what we were saying to ourselves. Hey, we're getting 15 percent cash on cash. We're getting 16, 18 percent. We can just we can just ride it out. Those are big numbers. So uh, I would love to hear your uh, your prediction for where you see rates and things in the next 6, 12, 18 months. Yeah. But so I don't really, I don't don't have a percentage, I would say. I just, I think that rates are going to, um, and this, this is, and I'm not that precise on like six months, 12, but within the next one to two years, I think rates will be back down into the fours for the type of borrowing me and you do like you know middle market like multi 4.01 or 4.99 4.5 okay i feel like i feel like <laughs> that's a big range yeah, yeah yeah i feel like we um yeah mid fours yeah it, it, where you know being in the threes that felt like it was kind of propped up in a way like where we're artificially 
pushing rates down, like something's going on. And then, you know, in 2018, the Fed was raising rates and they got into the fives, like the the, yeah, the yeah. normal multifamily loans mm-hmm. we do. So I feel like somewhere in that range, you know, mm-hmm. mid fours is probably where things shake out. And, you know, so if that happens, anything you're buying now is a basis play, mm-hmm. you're going to like, because you buy it, you borrow at 6% today. And then you wake up in two years and go, hey, let's refi at four and a half, pull money out, rents are, and then that's right before your rents start to explode because there's been no new construction. Yeah. So that would be my, like, what's my three-year crystal ball is at some point in the next three years, rates drop meaningfully and rents really run up big. Yeah. Depending on where you are, is that enough to offset um, some of these cost increases? I mean, Chicago's had it... uh, had it nice with insurance not being too crazy like it is in some places, mm-hmm. but the property tax situation here is really hard to uh, underwrite and know mm-hmm. what you're going to get. And uh, then you have all these like idiosyncratic kind of outcomes where you have one property out of your 20 just gets totally annihilated mm-hmm. and then five are like below what they should be. And it's like where you you have all these odd outcomes let's say for mm-hmm. property taxes where um the system's hard here and that was exhausting for me yeah so, i can imagine um so that yeah that would be my crystal ball so then the trouble is if you're underwriting and like showing it to your investors like you're talking about if if you underwrote what i just said like you're okay so you're going to underwrite a cash out refi with a lower rate you're going to underwrite huge rent growth and cap rate compression but i i would think i do think all of those things are going to happen I don't underwrite that as my base case. And we'll I, know in five years. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I underwrite it as if like things kind of stay how they are. Like yeah, you put a five-year yeah, loan on, to. we're just going to own it for five years. We're going to sell it at a slightly higher cap rate than we're going in at now. Um, or depending on the scenario, you know, yeah. maybe the same cap rate depends. And then, so to me, like the name of the game right now is doing value add, mm-hmm. where I know you were saying, you know, 10 years ago, um, I was doing these deals that barely seem like value add to to you because they I wasn't uh doing gut renos but there was a they had a lot of value add in that like the rents what I was identifying it was similar to the commercial deals hey this is 20 percent below market for the rents mm-hmm. um so instead of like spending all my time on rehabs I guess I was spending my time just finding this deal that was under rented mm-hmm. and then I would just reset the rents when the leases came due mm-hmm. and that was my value add but any any deal where we only bought one deal and it was, we were in a 1031, one apartment deal where it was just sort of like rents are at market, but it's a pretty good cap rate relative to what's out there. And we bought it and that'll be our lowest returning deal. Mm-hmm. Like everything had some value add to it. Otherwise, like we wouldn't have been able to do all those cash out refis. Mm-hmm. So I think the name of the game now is, um, you know, doing value add. So you're going to be able to create value from here, improve the, so if the market does pull back more, you've at least offset that with your value add program. But then you're not just going to get the market return from here. You're going to get a higher return with your business plan. Mm-hmm. So yeah, value add, and then um, good things will happen in the next two or three years. Mm-hmm. What I'd say. Yeah, I think that's really perceptive. What do you think? I think um, uh, one thing that we had talked about on the first podcast, and I liked was like kind of advice for like new people starting out. And you know, when we were talking about that before, that was when the market was, you know whatever peaking like yeah absolutely you say easy but like you had talked about some mindset things specializing i mean what about like advice for people getting started or 
What I think is actually really exciting for people that are getting started right now is that all of a sudden we're going into a time where if you have dry powder and you didn't overpay for a property over the last year, two or three, you can now come in and actually, I think, find a real opportunity. And that's, that's really similar to what happened to me when I bought my first building. I was, you know, I think I told you before, it was like, got out of college, it's 2006, 2007, like can't touch anything, nothing pencils. And then 2008 rolled around and all of a sudden, you know, rates were higher. They were where they were now. My first loan was 5.9% for a 30 year mortgage on my first four flat. Yeah. Mine was at five and a quarter. And it and was, some at it seven was, and eight it, later I mean, on. right now is eerily similar to that time frame where things are changing. You know, all the levers that make deals work or don't work are changing a lot right now. And I think we're going to see potentially bigger moves on rents, you know, not your typical two, 3%. I think in the last 18 months, there was one study that said a one average one bedroom apartment in this market, Chicago had gone up 20%. And that's, you know, what would you normally underwrite that over a six, seven year period? So all of a <laughs> yeah. sudden we're having these big moves and um, my advice is to just, you know, be disciplined and just keep your feelers out because all of a sudden people just need to sell for whatever reason. And, you know, not everyone has a portfolio where they're just very strategic. They could sell it. They could keep it. They're sort of agnostic about it. But there's people out there that it's like, well, it's an estate. Someone passed away. They have to sell. Or there's a partnership situation. They have to sell or someone's retiring, they have to sell, like pick a reason. And people have to sell. And if the market's great, they have to sell. If the market's not great, if it's buyer's market, it's seller's market, people have to transact. So my advice for young people is to stick to your discipline on underwriting and make sure it pencils. Because I think, you know, if you've been sort of following around and looking for opportunity, I think all of a sudden you put it in your model and you're like, wait, this actually makes sense. And there's not a lot of people out there buying, you know, that's sort of the whole saying of, you know, uh, you know, jump in when everyone's running out sort of thing. And, you know, be, be scared when everyone else is being greedy. Uh, I probably got that wrong, but you get the idea. Like be, be greedy when others are fearful. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, like basically. I mean, I don't <laughs> I think that's you know, what it is. Gordon Gecko quote greed is yeah. good, but I think that just Things are going to start changing, and I think there's going to be opportunity. You just have to keep your eyes open and stay disciplined because there's going to be stuff knocking loose, and uh, I think there's just people are scared. It's a little bit disjointed out there, and I think for someone coming in now, I mean, you want to come in when everyone else is, is exiting, when there's no buyers and you're the only person that can execute or can move forward with something. I think that's where you really can make your mark and, and stand out and I think get an outsized return. So, you know, you just have to uh, plan accordingly. And um, uh, someone gave me a really good reference about, and uh, stop me if I've said this before, but, you know, Thinking of the environment we're in right now, doing what we're doing and other people doing similar things that the reference is that people buying, investing, developing, doing what we're doing, there's like this flock of, uh, of geese migrating, you know, seasonally to Florida or South America or Canada, depending what direction they're going. And um, right now there's this big storm all around us and no one knows what the hell is going to happen. But one thing we do know is that everyone is sort of in this situation where they're like, 
rates going up, rates going down, or is the market in a free fall? So everyone's sort of in the same boat. And um, I think just by staying disciplined, you know, behaving well, um, you know, acting with integrity, uh, I think that, you know, you'll, you'll come out of the storm unscathed and everyone's kind of going through the same thing right now. But I think for a young person coming in where they don't have, you know, maybe deals they have to work out and they can start fresh. I mean, you and I basically both started right from the bottom and we didn't have that baggage because right. frankly, we we're just too young. Like we didn't do any deals that were in those rate situations we described. So I think, uh, I think it's just a super exciting time and I would just, you know, try and find people to learn from that are going through it and are firsthand, you know, experienced people, operators, um, and find a, find hopefully a mentor and someone to, you know, pick their brain and follow them along, work for free if you have to. Um, yeah, think, know, and, think long-term where, you know, all these deals, I mean, who knows where prices are in three years? I mean, I always say that, but especially now, mm-hmm. but in 10 years, they'll be higher. Yeah, absolutely. And I so, mean, that's the thing. It's the gradual, it does this and your loan does this and you have the equity. And I mean, really, it's funny. Like if you don't lose properties to your lender or to a municipality for Lord knows what reason in the long run, <laughs> this stuff goes up. It's not rocket science, but it's about timing it and riding out the storm and coming out the other end. So, yeah, I hear you. And then, but if you're, if you're new, I mean, today's a challenging time. I mean, how do they go about getting the deals? Like it's, like it's, is it not a hard time to start or? Um, I think that you just, like I said before, you have to be scrappy. You have to be nimble. But I think that you basically say, well, the new interest rate is six and a half percent. I'm putting six and a half percent in my model. That's my number. And if someone has to sell, they're going to say, okay, like it is what it is. And that's where I think you find the opportunity is just say, I'm not going to stretch. Now is not the time to stretch. But if you have the capital lined up, you know, you've saved or you got a friend or uncle or investors, whoever that can, you know, invest alongside you and you have financing that's reliable um, and you can close, then you just you go to the seller and you say, look, I know you want two and a half million, but I, I can only get a loan that supports one nine. And you may be surprised that all of a sudden people are willing to let go there. I mean, I'm looking at a property right now on the north side and it's crazy. They wanted 16 million, 17 million, 18 million. And now through the grapevine, I heard that maybe they'll take 10. <laughs> and it's like a marquee asset. Like, ta da. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've seen that before. It's and it's happening. And I think for someone starting out, like imagine that on a on an entry level um, situation. But I think just be ready, be poised, work your work on building the right relationships and connections, be it a mentor, be it a friend, be it a partner, be it a backer, be it your lender, because when those opportunities come up, you really need to be able to like, you know, seize them because they're they're definitely going to happen. So Yeah. And I think when you're talking to those sellers, talking to those brokers, you know, just be an open book with them. That's one thing that I see new people doing that, I don't know, kind of astonishes me in a way. It's like, well, yeah, my plan was I was going to go borrow this money from my brother-in-law and I've never done one of these before. I mean, it's better, you're better off just telling them that's your game plan than some opaque scenario. They don't mm. understand what's this guy doing? Where's the money coming from? Yeah. Do you have be any properties? Yeah. yeah. Like just be transparent with them. You know, in in the in a hot market, 
I mean, I'd recommend being transparent all the time, but in a hot market, then maybe they'll go, okay, I'll just take this experienced buyer. No, thanks. Mm-hmm. Well, right now that experienced buyer to Gay's point might be busy dealing with all this problem, problem properties. And they just have this one guy or gal being transparent and going, all right, at least we know what the heck they're going to attempt mm-hmm. to do. And if they can't yeah. get it close, whatever, we'll try to sell it again. And, uh, you know, so I, that would be my advice too, because it's hard starting out. And then, you know, on your first deal, have it be like a longer term hold, cash flow positive. Ideally, don't do any renovations mm-hmm. yet. This is just about acquiring a property and getting like the Get basics going. Yeah. yeah. That'd be my advice. I didn't start yeah. doing any renovations till over 10 years and I, I waited. <laughs> and Gabe was telling me I was so smart for not doing any renovations. And now I'm renovating over 100 apartments right now. So, <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Interesting it, times yeah. we live in. Yeah. At least they're in a different state than I live in and, you know, <laughs> keep it easy. But awesome. Well, yeah, thanks, Gabe. Appreciate you thanks being Thanks for on. having me. It was a lot of fun as usual. Hope to yeah. come back again soon. Yeah, definitely. How do people get in touch with you? Uh, 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 yeah, feel free to find me on LinkedIn uh, or go to my website, www.base3co.com or email me at Gabe, G-A-B-E, at base3co.com. Awesome. Thanks, cool. Gabe. Appreciate Thank it. You. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.